Welcome to another episode of the Headmasters Podcast. I'm Dr. John DePoe, Headmaster at Kingdom Preparatory Academy, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about intellectual virtues with Professor Jason Baer. Uh, Jason Baer is an expert on this. He has published many books on it, and this is a really good conversation. So I'm looking forward to sharing this with all of you. You'll want to check it out. Before we jump into that interview, let's talk quickly about a few announcements. So coming up around the corner, we have our School of Rhetoric retreat from September 11th to the 13th. We have the School of Logic skate night on September 12th. Coffee with the Headmaster will be at 8 in the morning on September 18th. Please come and we'll get some coffee. And we have our first parent preview coming up September 25th. So if you have friends who might be interested in learning more about the school, uh, we'll be doing a preview night for them. Point them our way and we'd be glad to show them a little more about Kingdom Preparatory Academy. All right, with that out of the way, let's jump in and talk to Professor Bear about intellectual virtues. All right, well, I am uh, sitting down now in the studio with uh, Professor Jason Bear. Um, why don't you share with us real fast a little bit about uh, where you're teaching and some of your, your work for our audience? Yes, I'm a professor of philosophy at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, which is a Jesuit university. Been teaching there for 20 years. For the first 10 years or so of my career, I worked primarily in what I would describe as a theoretical virtue epistemology. Virtue epistemology being an approach to the philosophical study of knowledge and, and knowing that foregrounds um, the concept or notion of intellectual virtue or virtues. Mm -hmm. And theoretical virtue epistemology just being an approach to virtue epistemology that um, is very theoretical in nature. The second half of my uh, 20 years at LMU has been spent um, working in theoretical virtue epistemology, but then also applying um, virtue epistemology to um, educational um, practice and and theory. So uh, you and that, yeah, please. So you get to to do something very few philosophers really do, which is to take your ideas yeah. and try them out, or to start applying them, or asking others to to really use <laughs> them in practice, right? Yes, that's right. That's unusual, and it's um and it's risky, I think, in in various ways, but also um been an exciting experiment yeah. well i think there's an intellectual virtue that goes with taking those kinds of risks um so the uh i, I want to say thank you for for joining us and um one of the reasons that i reached out to you is because um well because of your work on intellectual virtues and in particular there's a book that you've written called deep in thought and it's uh published i think by harvard education um press and it's really a book, like just like what you're describing. It's for teachers, and it connects the practice of teaching with this idea of cultivating intellectual virtues in our students. Um, let me go ahead. I know you you mentioned just a little bit about it, but let's slow down and just say, let's talk about what is what are intellectual virtues. Maybe that's a good place for us to start. Um, if you were talking to, to a parent at a school 
and they heard you were um, an epistemologist who works with the intellectual virtues. How would you unpack that for, for them to help them understand what intellectual virtues are? I describe intellectual virtues as the personal qualities or character strengths, character attributes required for good thinking and learning. So to come at that definition, uh, it can be helpful to think about what we consider um, intelligence to be or what it, what we think it looks like to be smart. And often we think of smarts or intelligence in terms of knowledge, knowing a mm. lot, about a lot. Sometimes we think about it in terms of natural aptitude or talent or intellectual uh, giftedness. <clears throat> but I think we all know that a person can know a lot about a lot, be naturally very smart and intelligent, but also be intellectually arrogant mm -hmm. or dishonest or maybe even careless or lazy mm -hmm. and i think what that underscores is that part of what it is to be smart part of what it is to be a good thinker or learner is to have certain attributes of character um, qualities like curiosity or inquisitiveness um, intellectual humility open-mindedness intellectual courage and tenacity mm -hmm carefulness mm -hmm. and thoroughness those are those are qualities that depend to a significant extent on the orientation of our wills they aren't something that we are naturally gifted with or without they aren't a matter of knowing things they're a matter of what we care about and value and how we are personally oriented in mm -hmm. the context of thinking and and learning and truth seeking yeah, you know, that that is so key to what we do at the school that I'm at. Um, we call ourselves a classical Christian school. Um, you know, many schools are doing what we're doing, even if they're not using that name as well. But um, one of the, the touch points for us is an essay by Dorothy Sayers. She wrote this essay called The Lost Tools of Learning. It was a lecture that she had given, I think, at Oxford. But she compares the idea to, you know, if you want to teach someone to play the piano, you could literally train them to play one song, just you play this note, then that note, and at this, you know, in this tempo, but you really haven't taught them to play the piano if you just teach them to play this one song by memorizing a sequence of keys to press. What you want to okay. do is teach them uh, how to read music, you want to teach them some music theory, you want to teach them um, some principles of scales and improvisation. Um, and it seems like one of the worries today in education is that we're kind of doing education more like memorizing the sequence of keys. Like we want to just teach students, here's what you answer on a standardized test, uh, mm -hmm. but we're not really teaching them the principles behind learning. And I think um, what you're talking about in some ways is that we need to be thinking not just about the knowledge we impart to them, but the habits the skills, and really maybe once again, the word you use that's probably better is character behind that, that enables learning. Would yeah. you say that, that that is a, is fair to say? Yes. That, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And that's kind of a, that's a nice analogy. Um, the one kind of twist I'll make on it is that uh, interestingly, and I, and I, it, in, at least in many respects, I think this is positive in the last 10 years or so, at least within public education, 
there's been a shift in focus from content and knowledge, maybe even mm -hmm. to an extreme in favor of um, an approach that emphasizes uh, processes and skills. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I think, again, that's a movement in the direction of intellectual character and virtues. But one thing to notice is that is that we can equip students with certain abilities or skills. Um, but if they don't have good judgment about when and where and how much to use those skills, and if they aren't motivated mm -hmm. to use those skills and motivated by good ends or goals rather than questionable ones, then those skills may not count for a lot. So, so I think that skills are necessary for, I think they, they partly constitute what intellectual virtues are, but I think intellectual virtues have other dimensions. They mm -hmm. have a, a judgment dimension and they have a, a robust motivational or mm -hmm. volitional dimension as well. The other thing I'll say in connection with what you just mentioned is that part of what I think Sayers is is getting at there is that is that education at its best is always personally formative. Mm. It's it's it it takes pains to shape and affect um, the persons that our students are are becoming. In the in the Jesuit educational uh, tradition, we hear a lot about um, educating the whole person. Mm -hmm. And that's one of those educational ideals that sounds nice and feels compelling. But for a lot of people, if you ask them to unpack what they mean by educating the whole person, um, you might not get a very deep response or you might get any number of different responses. Um, and I think this idea of intellectual character and intellectual virtue formation is a really nice way of unpacking the idea that that education is an exercise in personal formation, mm -hmm. that it is about attending to and educating um, the whole person. What does that involve? Well, among other things, it involves um, attending to, again, what they care about, what they value, what they delight in, what they prioritize, how they're habituated um, in the context of um so-called epistemic activities like truth seeking or responding to evidence or to counter evidence. Mm -hmm. So I think that the one of the things that virtue epistemology brings to the educational sphere is just a kind of rich language and conceptual framework to to better articulate things that we already care about and at some level are already trying to do in education. And it, and it can help us flesh out some of those aims so that we can better um, understand them and then and then more more successfully align our practices with those aims. Yeah, I um, let me put forward some, a misconception somebody might have about these intellectual <laughs> virtues. So somebody might hear some of the ones you brought up and say open-mindedness I, I mean that sounds like you know if you the kind of person if you'll believe anything you know you, you don't have any principles or um you know you can be so rigorous and so thorough that you're buried so deep in your schoolwork that you don't you're, you're of no practical use or that you you know aren't um using it in uh in the world that's right next to you um 
how would you correct somebody who has those kinds of misconceptions about some of these ideas? We could probably come up with, in fact, I know we can come up with these for all of the intellectual virtues that you mentioned. Yes, indeed we can. So uh, Aristotle famously talks about virtues as a midpoint between two extremes, one of which would be a, a, a vice of excess and one of which would be a vice or defect of deficiency. So with every virtue, there are certain uh, characteristic activities. And to possess a virtue is to engage in those activities at the right time, in the right amount, in the right way, not too much, not too little. And so the person who um, engages in open-minded thinking, who considers alternative perspectives, um, all the time, even when um, the the perspectives um, have really nothing to um, ev evidentially nothing to commend them, um, even when there's no reason to think that different perspectives might actually be true, or who can only perspective switch and can never come to a firm position or conclusion, that person would have an excess of open mindedness, not the virtue of mm -hmm. open mindedness. So to have the virtue is by definition to engage in the relevant activity or to practice that virtue um, in the right amount at the right time toward the right ideas for the right reasons and so on. So that yeah. would be we could with all the virtues. You're right. We can we can imagine um, sort of uh, qualities that look kind of like those virtues, resemble those virtues, but that are that go too far. And then similarly, don't go far enough. So for someone who's suspicious about the virtue of open-mindedness, I might say, well, what's the alternative? Mm -hmm. that, that we should always be closed-minded, um, mm -hmm. that we should never consider alternative points of view, right? That doesn't sound very truth-conducive. That doesn't sound very loving. Um, and, and, and so I think it's really no better than the excess of, of open-mindedness. Mm -hmm. So for all of these virtues, we have to try to hit the mean. Yeah. And at my school, um, we're, you know, we're faith based and, and our families are here for a discipling purpose. Um, yeah. I know Socrates famously um, said the unexamined life is not worth living. I sometimes like to, to say, although I probably need to qualify it in some ways, but but I'll, I'll throw it out there is that the unexamined faith is not worth believing either. Mm -hmm. And so um from my perspective, I think that being open-minded in this way is not to be relativistic or to be uncommitted, but that it, it's very helpful for even understanding what you believe. And actually, I think if you believe true things, it will sharpen that up and actually make it give you more confidence in what you believe, not shake it. So yeah, um, th that would be the outcome, I hope, for an open-minded person when, when thinking about these things. Um, yeah. I. I wanted to talk about um, some of the principles you bring up in your book um, in the chapter on principles about how this is going to have to be done differently in the classroom and that there are some ways in which we have to think about how we teach. And so uh, whether that and I think this would apply to parents just as much to teachers in terms of the, some of the things that we focus on. Um, so one of the one of those uh you give them in kind of these one thing versus the other things. And one of those that um, is the focusing on the process of learning rather than just the outcomes. Um, could you share a little bit about that, that aspect of how we need to focus on the process instead of just the outcomes 
when we're thinking about teaching in ways that cultivate intellectual virtue in our students. Yeah. If the goal is trying to have an impact on the intellectual part of the goal, part of one's goal, is a matter of trying to have an impact on the um, intellectual character of our students. So to to have some sort of formative impact on, again, what they what they care about when it comes to learning, what they're willing to do or not to do, the the choices that they're that they're disposed um, to make, what they enjoy or or don't enjoy. Those those are those are difficult changes to affect or bring about. They're deep and personal. And so I think they can only be nurtured and cultivated with great care. And that can that sort of perspective can be at odds with a perspective that says, look, I just want to get my students to a point where they have mastered this content or can um, uh, demonstrate this skill. Doesn't matter how I get them there. I just need to get them to demonstrate these competencies or or proficiencies. I'm not saying anything against competencies and proficiencies, right? But there are ways of meeting that goal of competence or proficiency that might have little effect on what students really care about um, or how they are truly um, disposed or habituate to learn once they have demonstrated the 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 relevant competence or um or or knowledge or understanding in fact i think there are ways of teaching for mere competence that can be at odds with the intellectual character mm -hmm. formation of our students so let me just give an example um it's it's a well established fact in in some of the um psychological literature on what's called self determination theory that extrinsic motivation is um inversely related to in, mm -hmm. in, intrinsic motivation so i can give my students all sorts of in, extrinsic motivations for memorizing this body of knowledge or for learning how to apply a particular principle or formula, right? Um, but what we know is that insofar as students are motivated to achieve those things for extrinsic reasons, maybe merely for um, a good grade or extra credit or you know a, a party at the end of the semester, that that I, will actually my best learning always took place when I was trying to impress a girl. So yeah, um, yes, yeah. You're right. That would be an extrinsic yeah. motivation. That's right. But but what we know is that extrinsic motivation crowds out and is inversely related mm -hmm. to intrinsic motivation. And what we want if we're teaching for intellectual character is for students to enjoy learning, to care about learning. Um, for its own sake, or at least as part of a good life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so we have to attend to the process of helping them develop knowledge and skills. Knowledge and skills are always going to be important, but how we, um, how we seek to cultivate knowledge and skills will have an effect on the longer term uh, mm -hmm. influence and the deeper personal ways that we might um, shape and, and influence 
um, our students. So we have to attend to who they are as persons. We have to attend to certain relational dynamics in the classroom and, and at mm -hmm. the school. We need students to feel uh, respected and cared for and within limits, you know, empowered and a sense of their own agency. Um, and, and the idea is that if we can teach knowledge and skills in that context, we'll stand a better chance of kind of reorienting them at the characterological level toward mm -hmm. uh, knowledge and learning long-term. Well, that's a nice setup for one of the ones I was going to ask you about, which is the that we have to think about how we teach to do so in a way that you say is relational, not transactional. I know you actually said a lot about that, but is there any more you'd want to say about that uh, that dynamic when we want to cultivate and develop those intellectual virtues that we need to be relational in the classroom, not just transactional. Yeah, so I'll, I'll repeat myself a little bit, but but where the goal is to reorient students um, toward one kind of grand way to put it is where the goal is to reorient it as students toward um, thinking and truth and knowledge and even wisdom and understanding mm -hmm. so that they're so that their selves are more deeply aligned with um, those aims. Um, that sort of personal reorientation is unlikely to happen in contexts where they don't feel seen or in contexts where they don't feel safe or cared for. Mm -hmm. that, that, that might not be obvious, right? Because being seen and, and cared for and respected, those are very... Um, uh, kind of social, emotional, ethical um, ideas and terms. And, and you might think, I think you might mistakenly think that intellectual character formation is all about the intellect and the mind and truth and knowledge and learning. But the point is that students are going to be less likely to reconsider their orientation toward truth and knowledge and so on in contexts where they don't, where, where certain um, kind of moral and ethical and social and emotional standards aren't met. Mm -hmm. So we need to care about our students. We need to create learning environments that are, 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 are caring and respectful in order to help, help, excuse me, in order to help put our position, or, okay. We need to create uh, uh, learning environments that are, that are caring and respectful in order to put our students in a position to uh, open up to other deeper forms of thinking and learning. Because ultimately, this is about character formation, and that involves some vulnerability as well, some honesty, and that can only happen where there's a trusting relationship there. And so for a classroom to be a place that if we think of it as if a teacher enters in that thinking, I'm just here to, to impart knowledge, but not to actually have that kind of appropriate relationship with a student, um, it actually can hinder that character formation we're trying to do because the student's going to hold back. They're not going to be honest. Um, it keeps them from actually engaging in the learning process in the right way. Um, so I, I agree. And I, I think that that is one of those insights that teachers often miss when we think of what we do as just kind of, you know, checking a box or clocking into a job that there's more to it than than just that. Um, that's well said. What about the so uh, the last principle? And you have, I think, like you have maybe ten in the chapter that I'm thinking of. But the last one I'm going to ask you about is just about the 
messy versus tidy. So I like this one too. My teachers, I'm sure really enjoyed it when I brought this up at, at training. Um, but what do you mean by that uh, teaching might have to be more, it might be messy as opposed to being really neat and tidy? Well, part of what I mean is, is the, the re related closely to this idea of process versus product, yeah. right? So if I'm going to teach not just to my students' um, brains or or minds, um, if I'm all if I'm going to teach to their whole person, if I'm going also to teach to their to their hearts, if I'm going to take seriously what they care about and how they feel and what they value. Well, that's there's a complexity there and there's an unpredictability there um, that can be messy. Similarly, you mentioned the idea of 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 a classroom that's vulnerable, where students feel comfortable um, taking risks and uh, sharing what they really think that can get messy. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that's I think that's part of it. Here's another part of it. And you were trained as a philosopher. I was trained as a philosopher, and 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 at least in the type of philosophy that I think we were both a general approach to philosophy. I think we were both trained in. There is a premium put on making everything as clear mm -hmm. and um, tidy and analytical and and simple um, as possible. And there are lots of virtues wrapped up in that. Don't 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 get me wrong. And I, and I can't help myself but to strive for <laughs> clarity and simplicity. Uh, but but if as teachers, our approach is to get everything worked out in crystal clear detail, so that we can just download it to our students' minds. Think for a moment about the position that that puts our students in. What do they have to do in order to succeed or learn in, in our class? Well, to the extent that I can make the material crystal clear and tidy, all they have to do is just sort of sit back and receive. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that they are in that sort of mode, they're passive. Mm -hmm. And And so one of the things that, I've had to learn in this, in my own sort of pedagogical journey and um, thinking about virtue epistemology and applying it to education, I've had to learn to really um, resist at certain points being particularly tidy and, and intentionally creating um, opportunities for students to puzzle, mm -hmm. and to wonder, and to not just sit back and receive. Now that can be done poorly and it can be an excuse for not thinking through one's, one's subject mm -hmm. matter. I'm not endorsing any of that. I'm endorsing something that's actually much harder, which is how, how can I create opportunities, not just for my students to, rec to receive um, clearly uh, uh, and, and well-organized bits of information, but how can I create opportunities for them to really puzzle and to wonder and to take risks and to struggle mm -hmm. because moving through experiences like that will require an exercise of their agency, mm -hmm. their 
wills and their minds will have to be active. And I think it's it's in that context that intellectual character um, is engaged and can be um, uh, reformed. Very good. And and once again, I, I would commend to teachers to check out your book because you go into a lot more depth about how to how to do that as well. Um, I, I want to pivot to a final kind of question for you, which is that uh, I can imagine some of my teachers and parents listening to this saying, this all sounds really great. Um, I want this for my students and my own children. But what if they say, I don't feel equipped to do this. I, I look at these intellectual virtues. I feel like I'm lacking. Um, I don't know if I have what it takes to give it to them. What would be your advice to somebody who's feeling that way? Well, my first semi facetious response is would be to draw their attention to the virtue of intellectual humility, which is an opportunity for us to admit what we don't know and to admit our intellectual limitations, even the intellectual limitations of our character. And whether we're talking about parents or teachers, that can be really powerful for students or children. Because as parents or or as teachers, we're the experts. And so for us to have the um, vulnerability to admit our, our limitations or what we don't know or where we're weak, that can be an inspiring example to our students for them to similarly feel like they can admit what they don't know or where they need help, um, which is absolutely essential to um, longer term intellectual growth. So that's one of the first things I say, mm -hmm. I'd say is that there's always intellectual humility. Um, I, I also, I do think it's really important. I mean, it, I, in the book, I, I focus on what primarily on what we as teachers can do to help our students grow as intellectual virtues, but help, help our students grow in intellectual virtues. But speaking to you as, as an administrator and school leader, um, I think it's no less important for teachers and I'd say for parents, but for teachers to be attending to their own intellectual character strengths and limitations and doing what is in their power as individuals and especially together as a community to nurture their own growth and to support their own pursuit of, of intellectual virtue. Because it's true that, that modeling virtues for our students is one of the best things we can do to um, motivate them to and help them see what it might look like to um, change and adjust parts of their own intellectual character. So, so, so it's all a process. I also would probably say virtue possession is not an all or nothing mm -hmm. affair. Um, it, there, there, nobody possesses any of these virtues perfectly. And so um, um, we can all pursue progress and we can all get a little bit better. And, um, and so I, I would encourage them not to uh, feel discouraged. I also suspect that for most parents and teachers, there are already ways in which they are modeling these, these qualities for their students or for their children. So maybe just spending some time getting to know what these virtues are and what they aren't, what it looks like to hit the mean for each of these virtues. It's really an opportunity to educate themselves um, about some important 
ideas, but also to educate themselves about themselves. It can be a way to better understand who they are as, as thinkers or learners. And I suspect, again, that most parents and teachers will find that, oh, in certain ways I do uh, possess and exercise these qualities and model them for my children or for my students. Yeah, and um, I think in the back of your book and several other books on intellectual virtue, you can kind of take survey, kind of survey yourself, kind of a self-test. Um, and if any of my students, any of my parents or, or teachers are listening and want to go deeper on any of these things, of course, I'd be thrilled to set up a, you know, a book club or an opportunity to read through more either on intellectual virtues or just go deeper on anything. You want to learn calculus, uh, chemistry, um, you know, learn something about Egyptian history, whatever it might be. Uh, you know, I, I find that it's always been helpful to just always can you, you, you stay sharp by continuously using those tools. You don't let them sit in the tool shed and, and get rust on them. So, um, yes. Yeah, so what I like about that response too is it is it highlights that part of what it can look like to pursue growth in intellectual virtues is to learn about what intellectual virtues are and to better under, understand ourselves in 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 light of those ideas and and definitions. Um, but it's also just to get out there into the world of learning. And to pursue things that we're that we're curious about. Mm -hmm. Great teachers have always been teaching for intellectual virtues, even if they didn't have that term or or language. And 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 similarly, we can we can we can pursue and grow in virtues even if we don't know what they are. Mm -hmm. But I think it helps to have the definitions and the ideas and and the understanding so that knowledge can work in tandem with and be mutually reinforcing with some of these um intellectual practices well on that note i think i'll i'll wrap it up there thank you so much professor bear uh thank you for your time for this interview thank you for your book and um it's been a, a real pleasure talking with you yeah you're very welcome thanks thanks for your interest in this and uh and the good work that, that you're doing uh, with students as well. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Headmasters Podcast. Uh, let me wrap up with a few more of our announcements for the KPA community. Uh, we will have our School of Rhetoric Retreat September 11th to the 13th. We have our School of Logic Skate Night on September 12th. We will have Coffee with the Headmaster on September 18th at 8 in the morning. And our parent preview for prospective families will be on the evening of September, of September 25. Thank you all, and I hope to hear you on the next podcast.